Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to continue today talking about guns, how they fit into our Constitution, and how we might better regulate them, but despite the constitutional restrictions. Then we're going to hear from Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, a Democrat and defender of the Second Amendment, who also believes we need more sensible gun regulation. She'll tell us why Congress can't agree to act. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The children who were killed at Sandy Hook would be high school-aged today. And the high schoolers who were killed at Columbine in the 1990s would be approaching middle age. That's how long we have been struggling with mass shootings, unexplained, random mass shootings at schools and other places. And yet, here we are, having the same conversation about why this happens, how we are to live with and through this kind of carnage, And whether we can do it differently. Could we stop mass shootings from happening? Could we pull the right policy levers that would prevent people from either getting their hands on the guns they use to create these tragedies? Or could we create a culture where people are less prone to even want to do that? There are a few answers that I think have always been really clear. This would be easier if there were fewer guns on the street. Some 400 million guns in circulation in this country I don't think makes sense by any measure. And maybe we ought to talk about guns that are less lethal. What is the purpose of an AR-15? for instance, other than to take life as quickly as possible. We've seen other countries have really great success from those approaches. Australia, for instance, had a widely successful gun buyback program where the government literally went out and bought guns from people. Mass shootings plummeted in that country. And you can look all around the globe, especially in the Western world, and see how sensible gun regulations, sometimes extreme gun regulations, keep these kind of things from being as prevalent as they are here in America. Now, we know this is a different country from all of those places, and we have a constitution that nods specifically to the right to bear arms. It's more complicated for us to deal with this. But I think everybody right now needs answers. I don't think anybody is sitting around thinking, well, there's just nothing we should do. We have to live this way. I think everybody is thinking about things like universal background checks, Maybe removing some of these advanced weapons from the marketplace. Or greater restrictions to make sure that people who will do the things that we have been witnessing just don't get their hands on a gun. Legal scholar Mary McCord has 
some ideas of her own about how to use our judicial and legislative systems to make public safe spaces a lot safer. She is the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a visiting professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center. Her recent column in the New York Times is titled Uvalde, Buffalo, and the Semi-Automatic Weapons That Terrorize Us. Professor McCord, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So in the article, you know that semi-automatic weapons are often used for a political purpose. They are used for the purpose of terrorism these days. I said in the open that I, I just don't even understand what useful purpose these weapons might serve in civilian life. But uh, explain what you mean when you talk about them being used for political purposes. Well, the, the reason I wrote this op-ed and the same reason why I drafted a amicus curiae brief, which is a friend of the court brief uh, that was submitted in the Supreme Court in the pending Second Amendment case that, that the justices will be deciding this year sometime by early July. I wrote that on behalf of dozens of former national security officials across the, the federal government, uh, I, which I was one myself. I was the acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice and a longtime federal prosecutor. We wrote that really to call attention to the fact that semi-automatic weapons are the tools of terrorists. They're the tools uh, that foreign terrorist organizations such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda have long called on Americans to use because they are so readily available in order to commit terrorist attacks here in the United States. They are the weapon of choice for white supremacists and anti-government violent extremists to commit crimes such as we saw in Buffalo. And although the motive is still unclear from the shooting in Uvalde, um, uh, it, it's the type of weapon that only really is used when you're intending to either kill a large number of people in a short amount of time where others with lesser weapons will have no chance to fight back, or it can be used simply to intimidate and coerce. And that's the other point, I think, to get to your question about political purposes. We've seen more and more and more in this country uh, unlawful private militias heavily armed with AR-15 or similar semi-automatic assault-style weapons uh, you know, come out en masse to intimidate and coerce people from exercising their constitutional rights. Because what message does it send to anyone, whether you're at your state house trying to petition your government, uh, you know, to for or against legislation, whether you're participating in a rally or a demonstration, what other message does it send when you are met with a group of people bearing such heavily, heavy arms, so lethal, uh, other than I could kill you if I want to? So you view the availability of these semiotic weapons as a national security threat, uh, and, and you reference there why that's true. There are a lot of people who take issue with that, though, and they say that it's our culture or it's the people who are committing these crimes that are the problem. Uh, talk about the, I guess, the tension between the idea that this is a gun problem mm -hmm. and that this is uh, a problem with the American people. Well, I, I I don't think there's a tension. I think that there's no one uh, source of the problem of gun violence and terrorism in the United States. Guns are clearly a part of it. People obviously are also a part of it. Are it, it are it is people who you know purchase the guns and use them in illegal ways like this, and also use them to intimidate and coerce others. So you know, there's no question. It's not just about guns, but it's the ready and easy access that guns to guns that have no real legitimate use other than to commit mass shootings or to intimidate or coerce. That's That just makes it that much easier for people like the shooters in Buffalo, Uvalde, Laguna Beach, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the Trio Life Synagogue in um, in Pittsburgh, the church in Charleston, South Carolina, all of these shootings um, are made easier by semi-automatic weapons. And I will note that some of them are not the long guns, the AR-15 style. Some are 
concealed weapons, such as what the shooter used at the Charleston uh, church back in 2015 to kill nine black parishioners. But that semi-automatic nature, uh, which can be converted easily by the use of high capacity magazines and sometimes and bump stocks and other methods can be converted almost into automatic weapons. It just makes um, the lethality so much greater. Um, and it makes this notion that someone else with a gun would be able to counter counter that lethality. That's just a fallacy. Uh, both in Buffalo and Uvalde, there were security guards, law enforcement with guns who engaged with the shooters. And um, of course, in Buffalo, it was the security guard who was killed because his weapon was no match for body armor and for a semi-automatic assault rifle. And in um, Uvalde, I don't believe that any of the law enforcement were killed, but a number of them were shot and they were unsuccessful initially, at least in incapacitating the shooter. So responding with some other type of weapon, you know, I guess my point being these weapons are so lethal, so dangerous, combining that with body armor, um, it's not something that law enforcement is equipped to be able to counter, much less arming teachers or others in a school who administrators in a school who should not have to take on that responsibility at all. I'm talking with Mary McCord. She's executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a visiting professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center. She recently wrote a column in the New York Times about semi-automatic weapons. We're talking about uh, guns in our country, the prevalence of guns in our country, the easy access to guns in our country and the role that all of that plays in the tragedies that we see unfolding over and over at schools, at churches, at grocery stores. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation uh, as well. Uh, what do you believe is causing the mass shootings that we live with uh, in this country? What do you think would make them less common in our lives? Uh, why do you think this country has more mass shootings than other developed nations. Uh, and have these mass shootings changed the way you interpret uh, the way guns fit into our nation? How should they fit into our understanding, for instance, of our Constitution? Uh, how should they fit into the context of legislation that lots of people support? that would better regulate guns, but that we haven't been able to convince Congress to act on. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter, put comments there, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Mary, before we go to our listeners, uh, I, I want to have you talk about the constitutional context uh, for all of this. Uh, it's an argument that has gone on for forever in this country, really. Uh, uh, a lot of people say the Second Amendment is pretty clear in its explicit protection of the right to bear arms. The Supreme Court certainly uh, has, uh, has embraced that idea of a very strong individual right uh, to, to bear arms in, in the Constitution. A lot of other people say uh, the founders, when they constructed uh, all of this, could not have imagined the things that uh, are possible today or uh, the, the lethality of the weapons uh, that we had, that uh, they didn't say we could have hand grenades, for instance. They didn't say we could have um, uh, missile launchers. Why are these uh, these rifles that people are using any different. So, so I wonder how you balance uh, that Second Amendment protection against what we're, what we're facing today and how, how we ought to be thinking about those things. Yeah, thank you for that question, because I think there is a, a really uh, broad misunderstanding across the country about the Second Amendment. You are quite right. The Supreme Court has been clear since 2008 in a case called District of Columbia versus Heller mm -hmm. that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms for self-defense. But the, that same case, District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008, Justice Scalia, writing for the majority, said that the Second Amendment is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. And people who 
claim that the language of the Second Amendment is clear and it provides basically an absolute right, just are ignoring that part of the court's opinion. The court's opinion was also very clear that gun regulation, some types of gun safety regulation have been around since the founding and even before the founding. Guns have been regulated or weapons, I should say, because guns haven't always been in existence, uh, dating all the way back to the statute of Northampton in England in the 1300s. So the regulation of dangerous weapons is not new. Um, and the Supreme Court in the Heller case made clear that many, many regulations are not touched by uh, the right to, to bear arms for individual self-defense. And in fact, the case District of Columbia versus Heller was really about self-defense in the home. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's not to say that this court would not, and, and I think we expect this court will, embrace a right to uh, carry weapons under some circumstances for self-defense outside of the home. And the question is, what are those circumstances, right? What regulations would um, would be would comport with the Second Amendment? And certainly, based on that language I read, it is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose leaves room for the regulation of the type of weapon, where it might be um, carried or possessed, and other types of gun safety laws, some of which you know we've seen passed in various jurisdictions. So things like, for example, bans on semi-automatic assault weapons uh, weapons, bans on uh, high capacity magazines, those type of things would be consistent with the Second Amendment. Um, bans on having weapons in sensitive places such as public buildings, courthouses, libraries, schools, polling places, those all are types of uh, things that could be consistent with the Second Amendment. And the Supreme Court has already said things like the Second Amendment does not protect a right for someone who has committed felonies to, to bear, to carry weapons, or someone who has a mental health um, uh, you know, issue. So there's it, the absolutism that you hear sometimes in rhetoric about the Second Amendment um, from gun rights enthusiasts and politicians is simply has no bearing in the text of the Constitution, its history, or Supreme Court precedent. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to get to some social media comments in the phones here. Pat on Twitter says, uh, despite professing to be pro-life, I don't feel the, like the majority of Congress will ever regulate guns. However, they have no problem regulating women's reproductive systems with complete authority. I guess their reverence for human life has a cutoff age, birth. Uh, let's go to the phones here, um, and we are going to start with Jerry in Detroit. Jerry, what's on your mind? Uh, hello, Stephen. Uh, we've talked on the uh, uh, subject of assault weapons in the hands of civilians before. The, I think that's the last time you had uh, the topic, but uh, I'm a Vietnam um, Marine Corps combat veteran. Hmm. I was in... Uh, in Vietnam in 1967, folded over into uh, 68 was 68, as you probably know from history, is the beginning of the Tet Offensive. I know about combat. Assault weapons have no business in the hands of civilians. They they go to the a firing range. They think of themselves as trained on these weapons. They're clueless. They have there's no comparison to what the training that we received mm. with those. Before we had M16s, I was there when M16s were introduced to us in Vietnam in the middle of my tour. We got them because of higher capacity magazines. Mm -hmm. They took the place of M14s. And really, if you ask the majority of us in, in, in the Marine Corps infantry in Vietnam, most of us, I bet, would have said we didn't want them. We would have rather stuck with the M14s, maybe t uh, 10 rounds and less capacity, but much more accurate. M16s with upwards of 15 rounds capacity uh, uh, t turned out to be the, the weapons that took over because of technology. But uh, uh, mm. that's that's those are the distinctions that I would make yeah. as far as the magazines go. Jerry, I, I really appreciate your call and of course uh, the, the the value of your own experience with these weapons uh, mary mccord this is uh, kind of the crux of the debate about 
guns and I guess where the lines get drawn in terms of what can be regulated and and what can't. Um, uh, but but talk about the the the, the idea of regulating magazines, uh, you know, capacity for these weapons, but but then also just regulating the weapons themselves. Uh, in your view, should the Second Amendment uh, be interpreted to allow much more stringent regulation of a weapon because of how lethal it is? I mean, all of us have been hearing, I think, about the details of the the, the level of damage that this weapon did to these children uh, uh, in Texas. Uh, why should you be able to to have a weapon that, that, that does that? And does the Second Amendment say that? Yeah, well, as, as we just discussed, the Second Amendment certainly doesn't say that you have a right to bear, carry any type of weapon um, right. that you'd like. Uh, but I just want, I want to re, and I'll come back to that, but I want to re- reiterate Jerry's point because I really think it is, it is so important. Um, so many uh, people who have been in combat, people who are gun owners, people who are gun enthusiasts, uh, support reasonable gun safety legislation. And there's so many people I've engaged with from across the country, including the Alliance for Responsible Gun Ownerships, who who very much support bans on weapons that are uh, just really killing machines, weapons of war, like um, semi-automatic assault style rifles and high capacity magazines. And so, although, you know, there's, I think, those who are opposed to these types of bans are a minority, but they have a very loud voice. They have a very loud voice on social media and a very and a, a greater impact from their voice than their numbers really um, bear out. And unfortunately, Congress is extremely receptive to the voices of this minority and seems to be paralyzed from taking any action. Um, and action is comes back to your question. Um, the Second Amendment, as I said before, not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. And so there is ample room there for guns, reasonable gun safety regulations. And that could include uh, bans on certain types of particularly lethal and dangerous weapons that require specialized training for their use, as Jerry indicated. Uh, these 18-year-olds in Buffalo and Uvalde, they had no specialized training. I think, believe the Uvalde shooter got his guns online. The Buffalo shooter got them from a local a gun, gun store, they walked out of the store and they were right there ready and capable of of meeting out the, the carnage that they, in fact, then go on, did go on to, to do. And so there's also, as I mentioned before, high capacity magazines, bump stocks, other things like this that make weapons so much more dangerous could readily be uh, regulated without impinging on that core right the Supreme Court has announced, which is the right to keep and bear arms for individual self-defense. Now, I'm sure that right extends also to the defense of your family and your home. We know the defense of your home, but it, it protects no, no right to offensively go out and kill people, correct? Um, so, an assault rifle is not something that you need for your individual self-defense. Um, so, and other types of regulations that have been discussed, um, you know, for years, such as red flag laws, mm-hmm. uh, uh universal background checks, these type of things that would also help to prevent weapons like this, uh, even if these are not banned, from getting into the hands of people who are not in a position to be able to use them responsibly. You know, assault weapons, I don't know. I've never fired one. Maybe it can be kind of thrilling, but they could be something that shooting ranges could, you know, have under lock and key, and a person who wants to shoot one can go to a shooting range and safely shoot one at a target if they think it's exciting and exhilarating to shoot a weapon like that. So, you know, to the extent that you it's don't just... don't need it in, out in the... In exactly. The yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mary McCord, it was really great to have you here uh, and share your expertise with uh, our listeners. I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. 
When we come back, we are going to be joined by Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who has her own complex thoughts about the Second Amendment and guns and Congress. Want to continue to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to social media and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about gun violence, the mass shootings in Buffalo, in Texas, and other places that we have all endured in recent years, and why we have a problem stopping these atrocities in this country. We want to continue this conversation by welcoming a really, really uh, important voice uh, to the conversation. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell is a Democrat who represents Michigan's 12th congressional district. Uh, She has done a lot to try to get gun regulations passed in this country, despite the fact that uh, she is a defender of the idea that the Second Amendment does protect People's Rights to Own Firearms. Uh, Congresswoman Dingell, of course, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. It's good to be with you on what's just another horrific, terrible week for too many people across this country. Yeah. So I I, want to start by letting you talk just a little about what we saw uh, in Texas and in Congress, uh, what the reaction to this is immediately when you when when members of congress are experiencing the same things that the rest of us are i would imagine that there is this this sense of responsibility that goes beyond what uh, individual citizens feel for this and then of course uh, there's the debate over what to do but but give me a sense of how you're reacting to all of this so i think that there are a million different feelings right now out there and you know, the Congress is made up of the House, 435 individuals, and the Senate, 100 senators. And each of us reacts differently to what happens. I mean, I'll talk about how what happens to me every time this happens in a minute. But I also, I mean, for me, I just have simply told my staff, please do not post prayers anymore. Uh, it, it's, it's trite statements as we watch these massive shootings happening over and over and over. We are the only country in the world that this happens in, and we uh, words just don't are meaningless now. I mean, we're horrified. Uh, we want to do everything that we can support community after community that sees these kinds of horrific incidences. But we're also not talking about the kinds of shootings that are going on every day in America. The numbers that happen in Chicago every weekend, the Detroit numbers are going up as the weather is getting better. But it's like that across the country. Uh, And we need to do something about it. And for me, it becomes very personal. Uh, This one in particular has really, I remember what it was like to live in a home with a gun and to be worried any minute that that gun could be used against you, that would the, your father just flip, just flip and threaten somebody as he did more than anybody should and the hiding in the closet. And, you know, all those memories come racing back as well. But I also know that whenever this happens, everybody goes to their corners. And nobody, we don't move forward. We don't do anything. And there, you know, I, 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 we are moving, I think, to at least being talked, talking about it more. I can remember as a young woman early in my career, and then when I married John Dingle, someone uh, who stalked me and tried to sexually harass me found out about my father. I have only 
um, this is the first time I've ever acknowledged this, and it's hard for me to do this at all because my mother's still alive, mm-hmm. and my mother wouldn't give me an answer to this question. I had to have a researcher answer, get the information for me. My father actually was a convicted felon because he did assault someone with a gun, but it was hidden and not talked about with us, and he had a mental health issues. And, you know, all of that comes up and we have to take, I was with a cousin this weekend who gave me permission to actually talk about what happened in her family and her, you know, she talked about shame, blame, and silence. And her daughter was diagnosed with uh, mental illness, went to a gun store should have been asked a question in a background check, and we're, I've been trying to find this out all, all week, uh, had been treated for um, mental health issues. Chrissy believes she lied on it, bought a gun, and went home and shot and killed herself in the bathtub. I mean, we've got to talk about what is happening. And I lived with a man, a man that was a very responsible gun owner, and he slept with a gun underneath his pillow, every day of our marriage. So I've looked at it from both sides now, but somehow we have to have calm, real discussions about how those that shouldn't have access to guns don't, how we protect those that want to shoot and hunt and and some want to protect themselves and have a right to if it's done in a safe way and isn't a threat to our community. It's complicated. And I've lived in the complicatedness of this, all of the emotions that you feel and hear and see, and they come racing back when we have incidences like this, which are far too often. But we've got to do something. Yeah. So, so Debbie, you and I have known each other a long time, and I've heard you talk before about uh, the things you experienced, uh, you know, as a child um, with, with you know, uh, a gun in the house and, and somebody who, who would use that gun to, to, to threaten safety. And, and I always, um, always think about that when I, um, when something like this happens and how, as you say, it all must come rushing back when you when you have to think about something like what happened in 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 Texas. And and again, I mean, I I, I have said this to you before, but that uh, obviously I'm really really sorry and really moved, um, you know, uh, by by your experience. But but I, I want I also want to drill down on the fact that you are still someone who respects the right to bear arms. And I think that complexity is the thing that gets so lost in the debate that we have about this, that, um, that people get, as you say, dug into corners. Um, but people's lives are more complicated than that. And, and are more complicated. Uh, and so yeah. are their emotions. Yeah, I, go ahead. I, I remember, this is something that most people don't remember. I lived the gun law in living color that passed under President Bill Clinton. And quite frankly, it would not have passed had it not been for John Dingle. Uh, It was a very vivid night of many um, intense discussions, people screaming at each other. I think Bill Clinton talked to John every 15 or 20 minutes over a 10-hour period. There were um, many members having discussions. Chuck Schumer was one of the people John was negotiating with, and it was very hard. I mean, John cried with Bill Clinton and said, I made a promise to my father that I would never let them take our guns away. Uh, And yet that night he saw what was happening in this country and he did not he wanted to to protect the right of gun owners and listeners need to understand that john diggle was a member of the nra board in the Mm -hmm. 60s probably helped create what it was in the 60s and the organization it is today is not the organization it was in the 60s or in the 70s you know one of the uh, when i was a young wife i hated the nra and 
um, made comments about it and got in trouble inadvertently. But John was a responsible gun owner, and his son is a responsible gun owner. But he did end up that night supporting the ban on assault weapons. Mm-hmm. He resigned from the NRA board that night. Nobody knew, or it was actually 24 hours, he went home and nobody could talk to him. But he ended up voting for that bill. Hardest vote he ever, I mean, there are other votes that, you know, the Vietnam War and a few others. But that really, I, I think that if I've ever participated and watched history, that was a night, that was history. And he, there was a man that was very torn, but he came out of his corner. He worked with people to do something that he thought might make this country safer. And um, it, 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 I mean, you know, Christopher, his son was very mm-hmm. upset with him for mm-hmm. a while. And quite frankly, we had to have police protection for several months because some people were so angry at him at what he did. Somehow, we've got to take the anger in this country, that hatred, out of this. I just don't believe... When I, I mean, when you hear the story of what happened in that second grade classroom, also what happened in Buffalo, just the walking into a grocery store, Mm -hmm. but those children couldn't be identified without DNA. The picture is so ugly. Think about, uh, nobody knows why yet. We, obviously he, he was, had some kind of mental illness. You just simply can't do something like this without being mentally ill, those little children trapped in a classroom whose lives were innocent and are now gone. We have to do something. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, want to play a clip um, uh, from Senator Chris Murphy, who has been talking a lot about what happened uh, this week and talking in some pretty stark terms about it. Um, Here, he's getting at some of the extremes that people may need to experience to convince lawmakers uh, to do something. And, and what you were just talking about, this unbelievable carnage in this classroom, the, 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 the absolute obliteration of these children by, by this weapon, I think is, is, uh, is what is on uh, Chris Murphy's mind as well. Let's take a listen to what he was saying. I know this is so hard to hear, and it's hard for me to say, but this country has to sort of come to grips with the reality of what these mass shootings look like. It was Emmett Till's open casket that changed the civil rights debate, and I hope that we don't have to show Americans what these kids' bodies look like shot by semi-automatic weapons in order to change public opinion here. But I can't imagine what those families are going through, and the Sandy Hook families are going through a lot today as well. So... He references Emmett Till, whose mother insisted on a casket with a glass top uh, over his head so that America could see what was done to him. Um, You have been talking about the ways in which, for you, because of your life experience, all of this is very personal, um, and that when it happens, it brings back these very stark memories. Is is that what we need in America to get people to the point where they put enough pressure on Congress to do something? And again, no one gets to decide what these families do with their the children that they're going to bury um, other than those families. But are we at a point where we need a shock to our consciences um, that that would put us in a different Put us in a different space when it comes to talking about these things. You know, Steve, I I don't know what kind of shock it's going to take. You know, Newtown, we saw the same horrific pictures. We have seen time and time and time again since Newtown horrific pictures of students, young people going to school and thinking they're safe and they're dead at the end of the day. We just had it in Oxford. We had it in Brooklyn. Now Texas. When is enough enough? When are people going to understand that something's wrong and that we're the only nation in the world that sees these kind of horrific mass shootings? And by the way, the mass shootings focus our attention on it. 
But we need to be paying attention to the numbers that are occurring every single day Mm -hmm. in cities and homes across this country. And we can't do it pointing fingers and yelling at each other. we got to have a community that comes together not as, you know, conservatives and liberals or this or that, as people that care about keeping our community safe. And and how do you take a, a complex issues but want to keep our children safe, our seniors safe, our are our communities of color safe? The white male safe? I mean, it's just happening in so many different ways. I've had men in front of my house with assault weapons. That's kind of terrifying, too. Mm-hmm. Did men with assault weapons belong at the state capitol or inside the United States capitol? How do we have a discussion about what's happening in this country? And I, I think there have been too many horrific events. We don't need another horrific event. We need people who come from all sides who want to sit down and figure out how do we address this. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell about uh, guns and mass shootings and legislation, how we get Congress to actually act on stricter gun regulation. Uh, We want to get to you on the phones and social media as well. Uh, Tell us what you think about mass shootings and what you would like Congress to do. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, Facebook or Twitter, and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, a Democrat who represents uh, the Michigan's 12th Congressional District. Uh, we're talking about uh, guns in America, uh, gun regulation, uh, the mass shootings that we are all living through, and what Congress maybe could do to make that uh, less likely. Could we get uh, a better handle on the number of guns in circulation in this country? Uh, could we get a better handle on who has access to those guns. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to uh, Facebook or Twitter and put your comments there. Uh, let's go next to Dan in Southfield. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was observing that the NRA, when I was a young person, was more of like a safety club. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't until civil rights, I think, it wasn't until the uh, so-called threat to the white majority that all of a sudden all this crazy gun stuff started. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, the NRA is a really different organization than it used to be, uh, Dan, and you're absolutely right about that. And civil rights was one of the issues for sure. Uh, that really changed the way it saw things. Uh, Debbie, you you were talking about uh, John Dingle, your your husband, and um, the way in which he fell away from the NRA. It, it is in this time period of of the 1960s when he's a board member, uh, and and much later when he has to to kind of step away altogether. You know, it was obviously one of the things that they've always taught has been gun safety and proper gun safety. I am not going to say that when I married John Dingle, he was not worried about people trying to take his guns away. Mm-hmm. But I do think, and I, and I think, you know, the so I think civil rights movement in the 60s, and I think at times now there were different issues in the 60s versus now. I do, um, I, I, I am very worried period about the hate we see in our country 
and the fear and the division that is, you know, really dividing us. And I do believe that guns have become part of that culture um, to some extent. I do. Th- I mean, hunting and fishing is a very much a part of the culture of this country. And I, and I know and I respect people who, I mean, this is where it gets really hard for me, who carry a gun. And my husband was one of them. My stepson is one of them uh, to protect themselves. But they also know how to use the gun. And I think mm. that, you know, I always used to struggle before we were even having these open conversations. How would you prevent someone like my father from having a gun? And every time one of these incidences happen, and, you know, each incident has different, something different behind it. And even the shootings we see each day between the gangs. I mean, I think that many people, I, one of the conversations that upset me the most was meeting with a gang and the kids were talking about what their casket was going to be like at their funeral. Um, it, I, I think, and, you know, the mental health advocates get very upset when we talk about guns and don't want that to be connected. Although, quite frankly, I said to them, my father had a mental illness. I, I can't disconnect it in my own mind that we don't want to stigmatize people with mental health either on that issue. It's all very, very complicated. Um, but there is this hate that is driving much of what we are seeing. And I think the hate in each instance may come from for a different reason or a different source. And we've got to we have to worry in this country about the hate that is dividing us in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Dan, uh, really appreciate the call and uh, the comments. Let's go to Jerry in Detroit. Jerry, what's on your mind? Hello, Stephen. Congresswoman Dingle. Hey. Um, go ahead. <laughs> um, I wish you had kept your guest on your first guest on a little while longer because I wanted to talk to her about those things. Uh, but the congresswoman will do for now. I'm going to try and make it as quick as possible. Okay. Um, um, you know, a lot of times when you hear when you hear gun advocates, you know, when they when they interpret the Second Amendment, they interpret it to mean you mean um, owning whatever kind of firearm you want, as many as you want, to take anywhere where you want. No reasonable restrict. No reasonable restrictions or guidelines whatsoever. Pretty much in their minds, anything goes. And um, as far as the well-regulated militia part, they also interpret that to mean just any disorganized, loosely formed, poorly trained, ragtag group of heavily armed white white guys um, playing war games in the woods. Um, I also would like to ask um, the congresswoman, uh, what was her reaction when you saw photos of members of Congress, you know, posing with firearms with their families, including um, Thomas Massey of Kentucky and um, mm-hmm. Lauren Bobert mm-hmm. of Colorado? Yeah, that, that that's a great question, Jerry. I'm glad you you asked that, uh, Debbie. What, what do you think about members of Congress doing that? Right? It's well, I mean, they you know they did their families for the Christmas cards with these pictures. It, obviously horrified me and I, you know honestly we this last couple of years has been so bad i i went over to i'm not going to name but the, some of these members are just in your face and are part of some of the hate and are quite frankly contributing to the hate and putting kerosene on the fire um but I, there are other members, I mean, and I, I mean, I'll be very blunt that Marjorie Taylor Greene is someone that I can, who is not one that did those um, uh, pictures with the rifles. But uh, had, if we weren't where we were right now in the Congress, and there wasn't so much, and there are members that you can talk to, but John, as a member of the NRA board, knew we always tried to be appropriate in I mean, of you know where you carried a gun, how you carried a gun, what was an appropriate way to handle it. He would never have approved of taking of those kinds of pictures. And I, you know, I said to one member, I said to a couple of members on the Republican side, you know, I wish you could have known John because he would have tried to have talked to you about the ways to do this without it being threatening or contributing to what is happening. And, 
I, I, I just think the whole polarization, the spirit of hatred, I, I really do think that we all need to worry about the hatred that's in our communities. It is a form of evil, and it is contributing to these massive shootings we are seeing. It's really dangerous and unacceptable and threatening the fundamental pillars of our democracy. Yeah. Um, I don't approve of what you saw. I've had the courage to say it to some people. Uh, and I'm pretty trying to be straightforward in trying to talk about a very complicated subject because if we all go to our corners and just start yelling at each other, we're never going to get any place. Yeah. Okay, uh, Debbie Dingle, always great to have you here to not only talk about what's going on in Congress, but to share your really personal uh, experience with this issue and, and all of the things that, uh, that you've learned over the years. Thanks so much. Uh, for being part of the conversation here on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me, and thanks to everybody listening today. And I guess I'd say to all of us, if we could find a way to work together, to not just scream at each other, we've got to find some solutions. There have yeah. to be some solutions. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. When we are going to talk with Bridge, Michigan journalist Jonathan Osting about possible fraud in the GOP gubernatorial campaigns. Imagine that. All of the things they said, the awful things they said uh, untruthfully about fraud during the 2020 elections in Detroit. And lo and behold, in their own campaigns, uh, there are massive, massive instances of fraud. Jonathan Osting will break it all down for us tomorrow. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. I want to give a shout out to the folks at KBIA in Columbia, Missouri, where I am, who are making it possible for me to be on the air with you in Detroit. We'll talk again tomorrow.